I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Here we are, Evidence for the Bible. This is our ninth session. I can't believe we've gotten this far already. And we're going to talk tonight about Daniel chapter 9, Prophecy About Jesus. This prophecy about Jesus is, is unique in the Bible. It's also really, really important because of the nature of this prophecy. Uh, you see, on this YouTube video series that we're recording right now, we've gotten some comments about the prophetic statements in the scripture. And one of them is, in fact, I'll, I'll quote it. This is one of my critics. His name is Jesse Selbert. Jesse, has, who I've interacted with on YouTube, he, and I'm quoting him, he said this, if someone says something extremely extraordinary is going to happen and then leaves the time, the time frame as eternity, I would say that it's not a prophecy. Now, I disagree with Jesse's criticism um, because if it's an extremely extraordinary event and then it is fulfilled against all odds, then you may not necessarily need a specific time frame. And that's kind of the details around the, around the crucifixion of Christ. We'll get here next week. We'll talk about the details. Uh, as we've already discussed some of them. But today, we will answer this criticism with a time frame prophecy about Jesus Christ. Daniel, the book of Daniel, actually predicted when Jesus would come. Not just that he would come and why some of the why he would come, but the when, which is what we're really interested in. That's going to take the bulk of today, is to see what did Daniel say. So the passage we're going to read is Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. The whole chapter is one big section, and it starts off with Daniel praying, and he's seeking wisdom from God because he realizes that a, a fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy has come, and the people of Israel are soon to go back into the land of Israel, where they were taken captive into Babylon before. So they're going to come back into the land, and all this stuff's happening, and so he's praying for God to give him wisdom. Well, what God does is God gives him a prophecy, not about Israel's past, but about Israel's future from this point on. So there's a fulfilling of a, of, a, of a season of time. Now there's another prophecy. So let's just read it in. And I will be going over this a couple times. Each time it'll make more sense. Each time some more will stick. And hopefully by the end of the night, you'll feel like you have somewhat of a decent grasp of the meaning of this prophecy. Daniel 9.24. 70 weeks, Daniel is told, are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So I'm not going to go over every single aspect of this prophecy, because some of it, I believe, is still future. Some of it is past. But let me point out a couple things. This prophecy is a time period that is 70 weeks. It's 70 weeks long. Okay? So there's a time period in it. Also, it's regarding specifically, it's about your people and your holy city. Now, who are Daniel's people? The Jews. And who or where is Daniel's holy city? Jerusalem. So it's 70 weeks, and this is a time period relating specifically to Jews and Jerusalem. So it's not 70 weeks about all of creation. It's specifically about Jews, specifically about Jerusalem. In this time period, several things will happen. Transgression will be finished. Um, there'll be an end of sins, and there'll be reconciliation for iniquity. Now, this is like New Testament talk here. We're talking about this. I mean, this jumps out to the believer as, hey, that's like Jesus. I mean, that's what we think he did. He made reconciliation. He paid the price 
to bring us back to God, to reconcile us to God because of our iniquities. There'll be other things that happen as well, uh, but let me move forward into the next verse. Verse 25, he says, Know therefore, now we get into it to more details. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. So there's going to be a command, and this command is going to be the beginning point of a prophecy. It will start the clock ticking on these seven and 62 weeks. So from the beginning, boop, the command goes out, and we start our little stopwatch. We wait seven weeks and 62 weeks, and then what happens? Messiah the Prince. That's when Messiah the Prince shows up. So this is a a prophecy here about the Messiah showing up. Um, That would start the clock. Okay, so 7 and 62 equals what? 69. So now there were 70 weeks of prophecy. So we have one week left. We're not talking about that yet. The last week, the 70th week, we're only talking about the first 69 consecutive weeks. Now what's going to happen during that time? Well, um, Messiah the Prince shows up. Then, of course, the street um, and the wall is going to be built again. And that's going to take... From the command, seven weeks and 62 weeks. I realize I'm repeating myself a little bit. I'm only doing it because I want to help get these main facts into our minds. Into our minds. So then let's look at the next verse. There's only three verses we're ultimately really focusing on. And here's the third one. And then we'll talk a little bit about the fourth. But And after the 62 weeks. So seven and 62 equals 69. After the 62, after the seven and 62. So at the end of 69 weeks. Messiah shall be cut off. So after 62 weeks, Messiah is cut off. That, that's a death penalty issue. He's going to be killed. Cut off means killed here in the Hebrew. And it will, be, it will not be for himself. In fact, cut off is specifically a type of killing that is related to a judicial death sentence. You read about it in Leviticus. And they say if you've done these specific crimes, then you are cut off. You are cut off. From the, from the people of Israel or cut off from the land or cut off from the land of the living and then they would, they would stone them or they would, they would somehow kill them. So it's a death penalty. So Messiah shall be cut off, he'll be killed, but it won't be for himself. He will not die because of his own issues. He will die for other people's issues. This sounds exactly like what happened with Jesus, doesn't it? Now we've already established in the, in the, uh, the title, the study title, Defending Daniel, that this book was written about 538, 539 B.C., this is clearly before Christ, but it seems to be about him. So here's the predictions. Messiah is going to come. He will die. He will die for others. Then, as you read on, the city and the temple are destroyed. And this will be again, because Daniel had, had experienced this happening about 70 years prior. So the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Till the end of the war, desolations are determined. So we have seven weeks, 62 weeks. Messiah shows up. Then Messiah is cut off. He dies for others. Then what? A, a people who, ha- who aren't around yet, they're going to come to where? The city, the holy city of Jerusalem, and destroy the temple, and they're going to wreck the city. So a whole bunch happens after the first 69 weeks before the 70th week. 69 weeks, the Messiah comes. All these things take place, and then we'll move on. Then, verse 27 he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. And how many weeks were left in this prophecy? Just the one. So this is the 70th week of Daniel, the last week. But in the middle of the week, 
He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. We're not going to focus tonight on the on the peculiar meanings of uh, the desolations and the consummation and all this sort of thing, because, at least in my understanding of prophecy, this is a future event. But it's unrelated to the initial coming of Messiah, because after the 69 weeks, several things happen, and then sometime in the future, the one week happens again. The, there's, there's, there's another week. Uh, now let, let's get into some details. Now, that was just a quick overview. Let's, let's just back up now and look at what we've, what we've read. There's a total of 70 weeks related to Israel. Now, on the bottom of the screen here, what you're seeing is my fancy schmancy timeline. There it is. That's the timeline. And how does the 70 weeks work? Well, what happens is there's a command, an issuing of a command to restore and build Jerusalem. When that command happens, we then wait a total of 69 weeks, or 7 plus 62 weeks. At the end of that 69-week period, who shows up? Yeah, Messiah shows up, and then several things happen. Messiah is cut off, not for himself, but for others. The temple is destroyed. Jerusalem is destroyed. It'll actually end up being rebuilt. It's implied because in the 70th week... They're doing sacrifices again, and the Jews don't do sacrifices without the temple. So a lot happens in between here. This temple that is is going to be uh, existing will then be destroyed, and then a time period goes by, it gets rebuilt, and then there'll be a covenant for one week, or a a contract, or a deal, um, or a treaty of some kind for a one-week period of time. Then we have the details of that one week in verse 27. We're not going to focus on that. Tonight, just too much to talk about. So any, any quick questions before I move forward to make this slightly more confusing before it becomes much less confusing, if you'll be patient with me. <laughs> any questions? All right, so let's move forward. The term weeks that we have here in Daniel 9 is probably not referring to days. It is, you could call it a week, that's appropriate. In the Hebrew, it's a word, Shabuah. In, in English, we would call this a heptad, which isn't actually originally an English word either, but, but a heptad is what? It's a, it's a group of seven. Seven of something. Like we have the word dozen. Now, dozen can refer to a dozen eggs. It can refer to a dozen donuts. It can refer to a dozen people. It can refer to a, a dozen toes. If you were surprised by the qualities of your child, you know, <laughs> there's a dozen toes on this baby. Um, so it just means seven, just like the English word dozen just means 12. That's the word. So I'm going to use the word heptad, right, when I refer to these weeks, because that's a better, probably more accurate translation, only because there isn't the word day in the context of Daniel 9. He doesn't say weeks of days. In fact, days aren't used. And a lot happens in this course of period, in this period of time, these days. In fact, I think each of these sevens is years, seven years. So there's 70 weeks or 70 sevens of years, equaling a total of then of 490 years. Now, this is not unfounded. This isn't like we're just pulling this out of the hat. Like, oh, nice translation you got there, Mike. You know, oh, yeah, that's years. Why? Because that fits the timeline I like. Rather, in the context of the passage, this has to be years, and I'll give you some reasons. Daniel 9, the context is this. Daniel is praying, and he's seeking the Lord. God, 
the 70 years in which we were going to be outside of Israel, we were carried away by the Babylonian king, that 70 years judgment seems to be over. It's about to come to an end. So we're about to come back into the land. So he's praying, God, show me what's going to happen. Are you bringing us back? How's this going to play out? Well, let me give you a little bit of the background of Daniel 9. 2 Chronicles 36, 21 actually tells us why they were kicked out of the land for that exact period of time. Let me read it to you. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. What? Well, if you were Jewish, this would make total sense, right? But the Jews have a Sabbath that would be this on Saturday, the seventh day of the week. But they have another Sabbath that's a Sabbath year, the seventh year. And then there's another Sabbath seven years later and another seven years later. Well, on the seventh day, you're not supposed to do certain stuff. What would that stuff be? Labor, right? Work. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. This is an important Jewish principle in the Bible. But also on the seventh year, there was another type of work you weren't supposed to do. God commanded them. He said, for six years, you shall till the ground, you shall plant your crops. But on the seventh year, plant nothing. Just let wild stuff grow. Don't do anything to your crops. But as we read through the Bible, they never, ever obeyed this command, at least not for 490 years. So when God deports them out of Israel... There's no more Jews in the land, which means there's no more Jewish farmers in the land. And for 70 years, they're outside of Israel in Babylon. And what's happening with the land? It's getting its rest. Well, what do you mean it's getting its rest? Why is it 70 years rest? Well, because if you take one year out of seven for 490 years, how many years have you got of rest that the land did not get? 70. So for 70 years, the land was allowed to rest while the Israelites were not allowed to farm the land. And God's like, hey, you don't do what, what I command. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it happen anyway. I'm going to make it happen anyway. So now this makes sense. Second Chronicles, right? To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. So the land of Israel got to rest for those 70 years. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now this is what Daniel's praying about in Daniel 9. He's thinking in the terms of weeks of years, isn't he? Oh, I understood by the mouth of Jeremiah, the prophet, that a 70 years captivity was going to be coming to an end. So in context, he's thinking of Sabbath year rests. And so it would make sense. Now, this isn't the only reason. It would make sense, though. It's legitimate to think that these heptads, the Shabuah, they, there are years. Also, Daniel 7 and 12, they get into more detail about the 70th week, the last week in the series, which we won't be covering in detail tonight. You can actually read them, but let me give you a little bit of that context. So Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, here's just one verse talking about Daniel's 70th week. The 70th heptad, it says, and from that time, the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up. There shall be 1,290 days. Now, Daniel 9.27 told us, that in the 70th week, there'll be a, one, a covenant for many, with many for one week, but in the midst of it, somewhere in the middle of that time, right around three and a half years, that covenant will be maybe broken because what happens is no more sacrifices allowed. You're not allowed to have any more sacrifices. And then it says from that time when what? Sacrifice is taken away and there was an abomination spoken of in that passage too, 927, and the abomination is set up. 
there'll be 1,290 days. Well, if this seven period is only seven days, you can't have 1,290 of them in the middle of the seven. It doesn't make any sense. If this is the seven supposed to bring us to the completion of God's prophetic plan for Israel, then the only way this makes sense is if this is years, because 1,290 days is just about, not exactly, but it's just about three and a half years or the midst of the week. Does that make sense? So if the seventh, uh, 70th week is a week of years, then the rest are as well. Revelation also confirms this. Now, Revelation, now we're looking at a book written, you know, 500 more years later, probably closer to 600 years later after Daniel. But it also confirms this. It talks about the same events in Revelation 11 and 12 as Daniel 9, 27 is talking about, as Daniel 7 and Daniel 12 are talking about. It's all together. They keep recovering the same territory, adding more details. And it refers to these things as being three and a half years, a seven-year period cut in, cut in half, three and a half years in between. So uh, for your own research, you could, of course, look that up. But um, it's clear. It's clear that Daniel is referring to years here because... Again, if the 70th week is seven years, then the other 69 weeks are each referring to a seven-year period of time. Now, this is pretty much where commentators all agree. I mean, the vast, vast majority of commentators look at the passage and go, yeah, these are weeks of years. This isn't, doesn't seem to be debated, not to my knowledge. There's always somebody out there who disagrees, but you'll never escape that. There's, there is no such thing as unanimous agreement in, amongst humans on any topic on earth. But there is large agreement on this. Um, so now let me give you again the general timeline of this prophecy. I, I, I'm just repeating myself here because I feel like if we hear it a few times, it, then the important points stick in. So a command goes out. Anybody remember what the command is for? To, re, to restore and build Jerusalem, specifically mentioning the wall and the street, and it's in troublesome times and all that. Okay. So, what will happen after the command goes out? 483 years goes by. What do you mean? Well, 69 weeks of years. 7 plus 62. 69 weeks, or, or heptads, of years. Now, Jerusalem, during this time, before, before the end of that 483-year period, during this time, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. It's the command to rebuild Jerusalem. Jerusalem is rebuilt because, at the end... There's Jerusalem rebuilt. Now, it's possible that this is the reason why seven weeks is separated from 62. It says there'll be seven plus 62 weeks. Why doesn't it just say there'll be 69 weeks? Is it like four score and seven years ago? Is it, is it just a, a way of adding? Or is it perhaps um, giving us a timeline for the rebuilding of Jerusalem? The first 49 years, seven weeks, is a rebuilding time. And then the rest, 62, is just wait, 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 wait for it. The Messiah is coming. Interestingly enough, this time period will cover the silent years between the New Testament and the Old Testament. This wait, 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 wait thing. We'll get back to that later. So then, after Jerusalem is built and 483 years goes by, Messiah shows up. So we have a pause, right? Because not everything I'm about to say, this can't all happen on one day. 69 weeks of years goes by, 483 years. Then Messiah comes. Messiah dies. He dies for other people. This implies fulfillment of the suffering passages of the Messiah. So what this does is it grabs onto the passages we've already covered. Genesis 22, Psalm um, 22, 
and of course Genesis 5, and we talked about Isaiah 53 and 52. All these were suffering passages of the Messiah. This grabs them all and says, oh, well, Messiah is going to be cut off for others. This kind of grabs those and puts them all on the same date Daniel's talking about. That's very significant. Jerusalem also is going to be destroyed. This obviously didn't happen all on the same day. Messiah shows up, dies, and Jerusalem gets blown up. No. Then, the new temple that isn't even built yet in Daniel's time, it's going to be destroyed. So there's a prophecy that it'll be a temple and it'll get destroyed. Interesting. Then, after all of this, the 70th week begins, this next seven-year period, where a covenant is made, the covenant is broken, sacrifices stopped. This implies, of course, that there will be a third temple built. The Bible indicates that there's going to be a future temple in Israel where sacrifices will once again be started. This was unthinkable 100 years ago. But as of about 60, 70 years ago, people started thinking about it because Israel became a nation again. And, um, and so people started looking at the Bible going, well, maybe it could happen. You know? <laughs> yeah. Then the abomination of desolation that Daniel speaks about, it's going to be set up as well during that time, that 70th week. So, let me go over this one more time. Simplified. There's a trigger, the command to rebuild Jerusalem. There's a time period, 483 years, and then there's, an, there's a, a, a divine appearance, Messiah shows up. That's what we're looking at. So it's a prophetic countdown. It's a, to answer Jesse Selbert, my, my YouTube friend, right? This is the time period that you were asking for. This is it. This is when Messiah comes. So it's almost like there's a clock, but imagine this clock has 483 years on it. And you're sitting there waiting with the stopwatch, but you can't start the ticking until something happens. What? There's some sort of command that goes forward that says, hey, go rebuild and restore Jerusalem, even the street and the wall. And then, click, from that moment, we start the time going and we wait. So this is the sort of prophecy that the Bible contains. It's not merely generic or broad predictions like, like there'll be wars and rumors of wars. People actually quote, Jesus said that, right? But in context, he actually said this. He goes, there'll be wars and rumors of wars, but don't let it bother you. The end is not yet. He's actually like, generic stuff like that, that's not the end. When you see this, it's the end. And then he gives detail, like specific details to look at. So Bible's not really into vague prophecy, but more specific and detailed and thoughtful things. And I find it very exciting. Very exciting. So the trigger. When do we start our clock? That's the debate. Now we're going to move forward. We've got kind of an overview of the prophecy. When do I start the 483-year clock? There's going to be a royal command, a decree. that speaks of something royal, whether it's from God or from man. There's some kind of royal command to restore and build Jerusalem. And then let me quote the text for you. Even the street and the wall. Even the street and the wall, specifically. Let's, let's look at it in context. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. Even in troublesome times. So the street and the wall specifically are mentioned here in this rebuilding. Now, we actually have historical records that prove when this happened. There are three potential decrees. Three potential moments when a decree went forward to rebuild Jerusalem. Where you could, you could grab one of these and say, I'll start my clock on this. Let's go over them. There's actually four, but uh, one is 
literally just a repeating of a previous decree. They just, Darius digs up this decree we're going to talk about now, Cyrus's decree, and goes, oh yeah, there's a decree, but there's no, there's nothing new about it. So if his is valid, then Cyrus's is the one. So Cyrus, in about 539 BC, give or take, this is when he brings up a decree to go, for them to go back to Jerusalem. This is what Daniel was praying about. Are we going to, when are we going back? That's what he says. Send them back in to go and rebuild. Artaxerxes Longimanus, Longimanus, Long, was he really a tall guy? Is that what that, I think that's what that means. I'm pretty sure my linguistic skills have not failed me. 457 BC, he sends out a decree for them to go and restore such and such to do something, basically. There's a decree that's there. We'll get into the details in a second. And then Artaxerxes, the same guy, later on in his reign, 444 BC, he gives out another decree. That's it. These are our three decrees. Again, uh, Darius, another decree. He's not worth mentioning because if it's only a reiteration of Cyrus, he just goes, oh yeah, Cyrus. So if, it, if his is valid, then we should go from Cyrus's date. This is not something worth considering. So let's look at the details. Which of these three decrees should we take as our starting point? Well, Cyrus, in about 539, we read about this in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and Ezra chapter 1. Let me read to you the text of the decree. Let's look at what he said they were to do. Does it fit Daniel's prophecy? In Ezra chapter 1, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, because the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So what is Cyrus decreeing to be rebuilt? The house of the Lord in Jerusalem. It's not specifically the city, which is what the prophecy requires. It's the temple. Only the temple is mentioned. Now, would there be some renovation to the city? It's possible. But we're not, we're we're focused on what did the decree call for? That's the starting point where we start our clock. Only the the temple. Um, They also, as you read more, as you read 2 Chronicles 36, it's more about the people who have been deported for 70 years, leaving and coming back into the land of Israel. They go away from Babylon and they move west back into the land of Israel. The people get to go home. They get to inhabit the land, not just Jerusalem, the land of Israel. They get to inhabit the land. But they didn't restore and rebuild Jerusalem into its prior state or something like that. Um, In fact, the city was not rebuilt in response to this decree. Not, but not in any reasonable period of time. So for this reason, I think that this, this one doesn't qualify. Let me, let, me, let me just say it again. They weren't told to restore and build the temple. I mean, the, the city, which is what the decree calls for. And they didn't restore and rebuild the city. So it seems to, fi- to fail on both points. The next one, Artaxerxes, during the first year of his reign, for about 457. We read about this in Ezra. I won't read you the whole decree. It's just too long for tonight. <laughs> it's a lot of information. You're welcome to read it. There it is. Ezra 7 verses 11 through 28. This happened during the first year of his reign, but like Cyrus's decree, it's only for the temple. It repeats over and over again, only for the temple. Go build the temple. Go build the temple. You see, Jewish religious life could not continue apart from the temple existing. And so he says, go build the temple. 
And in response to this decree, the temple was worked on. They did start to rebuild the temple. They laid the foundations. They started, you know, beautifying it, making it better. It seems that there had been some work from Cyrus's time, but there needed to be a lot more work. This may have been a beautification of the temple, or it may have been an extension of it. Um, but there was work done on the temple for sure. The city, however, I can say this, unlike Cyrus's decree, the city was built in a reasonable time after this decree, about 60 years later, according to Josephus. Uh, we don't have... I don't know of any other source that gives us a time period except him on this. The city was rebuilt about 60 years later in about, um, let's see, 396. Supposedly, that was when the city was finished, the, the last finishing touches on it, you know. So at least we have the city getting rebuilt within a reasonable period of time, uh, but we don't have the decree specifically to build the city. But there are some who think that this is the decree, and they take this as the decree. So let me show you the math that they use. 483 years, right? Here's our timeline, our fancy schmancy timeline once again, with all my massive skills of PowerPointness. <laughs> I wish. So Daniel's prophecy came in about 538 BC. Then Artaxerxes' first year, either 457 or 456, that's when the decree came out. We're not given a date or a month, just in the first year of Artaxerxes. So his, his first year overlaps 457 and 456, so it could have been either one. So that's when the decree starts. 483 years later, if you do the math, brings you to 26 or 27 AD. Now, if you do the math on a calculator, you'll be one year off because there is no year zero. When you go from BC to AD, there's no zero. It's just one BC, the next year is one AD. So you have 26 or 27 AD. That would be the time when if you take this as the beginning year, that's when Messiah is supposed to show up. Well, what's 26, 27 AD? This is commonly thought to be a very feasible timeline for Jesus' baptism by John, the beginning of Christ's public ministry. That's very interesting. And that fits with the scripture. And that fits with the timeline of history. And it fits with historical records of a decree to go out and rebuild in Jerusalem that seems to somewhat fit the prophecy. Although, I admit, there seem to be uh, a little bit lacking because the prophecy doesn't specifically talk about rebuilding the city. It's just the temple that's in view. And so let's move forward and look at one more possible decree. Artaxerxes, the same guy in 444 BC. We read about this in Nehemiah chapter 2. The decree here is not about the temple. It is about the city itself, and it specifically includes the wall this royal decree. Nehemiah, we read in chapter 1 and 2, he hears about how this, the city of Jerusalem still lies in ruins and it rips at his heart. And I think that, if I can just stop for a moment on the prophecy thing and just say this, if there's something that is ripping on your heart about our culture, or ripping on your heart about the state of the church, or ripping on your heart about the state of the world, then perhaps that's something God wants you to do something about. And I frequently had the Lord, something's heavy on my heart. I don't know why it's bothering me so much. But then in the end, that becomes something I'm able to impact or affect in some small way, you know, or maybe even in a big way. And so if you feel that sense, of, then I would say start committing that to prayer. That's the first step. And then just say, okay, how can I help? What can I do? And just go for it. Just go for it. Because I prefer a clumsy Christian trying to help to one who's not sure of how to help. You know what I mean? And we just sort of, it's easy to sit there. If you're like me, you, you don't help till you're asked. That's my tendency. But when something's on your heart like that, then if it's good, go do it. 
You know what I mean? If it's, but it's a good thing. Why, why wouldn't I go do it? Let me prayerfully move forward. Well, here's what we read. Nehemiah 2.5. He goes to the king and he says, he, he's like, oh, I'm really down about this. I can't even hide my, my sad face from the king. And the king's like, why are you sad? And he's like, oh, Lord, help. So then he tells the king, Artaxerxes, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send you, the king, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. The request is, I want to rebuild the city, not just the temple. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, now he really goes out there, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. But that's not it. A letter and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple and for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. So he goes with letters from the king telling them, not only you have to let me pass through with my entourage, but you also have to give me stuff so I can go rebuild the wall and the gates of the city. Some things that are specifically mentioned in the Daniel 9 prophecy. So this becomes a very attractive time. Very attractive. Now, the, the, the city was still in ruins also when Nehemiah shows up. Now, if, this, if the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem happened previously, it would make sense the city had been rebuilt. But it seems as though it's still in ruins. Let me read to you Nehemiah chapter 2. He's describing the city. Because when he first gets there, he just kind of travels around the city secretly on his donkey, just checking it out. How does the city look? And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass, meaning that even the donkey couldn't fit through. So this is not a functioning city with its open gates, you know, where the wall has been rebuilt. In fact, Nehemiah is all about building the wall. In chapter 7, verse 4, he says, Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. So there were some people living in Jerusalem when he got there, but there were few. It wasn't a city of people. It was a group of people living in the city, the fallen city, and the houses had not been rebuilt, um, even though some attempts at rebuilding this, the, the temple had already under, uh, undertaken. Now, specifically, the street and wall are rebuilt in Nehemiah. You read about it. It's a beautiful story about overcoming odds and like, like just sort of manning up in the Lord. You know what I mean? Like going for it. Like, ah. And they work at one point, you know, where they've got their, their, their tools in one hand and a weapon in the other. Because they have the enemy saying, we're going to come kill you. And they're like, oh, yeah. So they arm themselves, which is very interesting. There, there were no sword control laws at the time for the, for the people of Israel, which is good. Because had, there, had they been there, they all would have been slaughtered. Um, but so they rebuild this, the street and the wall, and it is, according to Josephus, I can't verify this, but it's the only historical account I know of that puts a, a date on when it was finished. Nehemiah tells us when the wall finally was connected, but that doesn't mean they were done working on it. So they finally connected the wall, they completed the, the connection of the wall, there were no holes where enemies could run through. And he, they did that in a very brief period of time, 52 days. But they kept working on the city, kept working on the city. Josephus says that that was a 49-year period, and it ended in about 396 BC. So 49-year period, that's interesting to me, because that's the, time, that's the only unaccounted-for time period 
in the 70 weeks prophecy. Seven plus 62 weeks, then Messiah. Well, if seven is the rebuilding, that fits the Nehemiah passage. That fits the decree of Artaxerxes in 444. Does that make sense? Okay, you guys are doing really great, by the way. So 483 years from 444 BC brings us to 38 AD. And this is where you go, that doesn't seem right, does it? 38 AD, um, we have very little reason to believe that Jesus was doing a ministry during 38 AD physically on the earth. Obviously, the church was going at this time. Things were happening. But Messiah had already come, had already been cut off, had already been resurrected, already ascended, and the church was functioning during this time. So now we get a little bit complicated if we haven't already. But I'll try to keep it simple. The awkward question I now have to ask is, how long is a year? Now, this might seem like special pleading to somebody, like, oh, you're just, now you're just making up numbers so you can do your thing. If I felt that this is what we were doing, I would never present it to you. I would never present it to you if I thought that this was not legitimate. What I'm going to share with you now, I think is legitimate, and I'll not only tell it to you, but I will also um, uh, make a case for it, okay? For a, a, a year being counted as less than what we typically count a year as today. So let me give you the case. And if you want to research on your own, there's two books that I, that I recommend. There's actually a lot of stuff I read on this. Uh, one is The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. That sort of started this discussion, I think. And then another book, actually, I would recommend more, is called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ by Harold Honer. Harold Honer does something, and so does Sir Robert Anderson. Even if you didn't agree with their work, they do something that nobody else seems to be doing in this debate on Daniel 9. They answer the critics. I like that. I don't want you just to tell me how right you are and how obvious all your conclusions are. I want you to tell me what the people who detract from you say when you say this. I want you to answer for me the holes that I see in your own arguments, the questions that I have in them. And I feel that uh, they both do a good job on this. My recommendation would be Harold Honer's work, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. I got it off on Kindle um, for like nine bucks or something like that. It was great. Um, you, you can get it on Amazon as well. And I think it's definitely worth the read. It's specifically about this Daniel prophecy and when was Messiah supposed to show up. And so um, I'm not saying that you, can, you can't argue in any way against these conclusions, but I think that they're reasonable. I'll just put it that way. And if they reasonably point to Christ, that is more that can be said about Christianity than can be said about any other faith out there. So how long is a year? Now we'll get into this discussion of a prophetic year, what some people call a prophetic year. I feel like that's kind of a weird term. Let's call it an, I'll call it an ancient year, okay? <laughs> an ancient year. People have not always counted a year as 365 days. In fact, calendars around the world do not always count years, even today, as 365 days. Or 300, technically, 365 days, 5 hours, 48 minutes, 45.975 seconds. The actual time of the sun, you know, uh, or the earth doing its, uh, its revolution around the sun. So, what am I saying? Ancient calendars. Ancient, ancient year. Ancient calendars frequently had 360-day years. So, um, in, in uh, Harold Honer's work, in uh, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, as well as the, um, the work by Sir Robert Anderson, as well as some other works that you can get in their footnotes, um, in Encyclopedia Britannica, as, as some sources on these things. Um, India, Persia, Babylonia, Assyria, Egypt, Central and South America, some places in there, and China 
had 360 day years on their calendar. So this is not just a fluke. This is something that was actually fairly common. Most of them had a 12 month year, each, each of them being 30 days, according to these, these works that I'm citing. It wasn't strange then to think of 360 days as being a year because they did. This was a common thing. Now to me, that in itself is very interesting, but it's not enough. Okay, that's not enough for me personally. When I first heard that, I'm like, yeah, that's not enough for me. If you want to tell me that I should count this prophecy as less than a solar typical year, then I need more than that. And so what I'm going to share with you next, I find compelling. Even if these ancient calendars didn't have 360 days in their year, I would still find this next part very compelling. The Bible specifically supports a 360-day year in the books of Genesis, Daniel, and Revelation. Let me give you some examples. Genesis 7, speaking of the flood, it says, In the second month, the 17th day of the month, so for us that'd be February 17th, right? They have a different calendar, but for us that'd be February 17th. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. Then we continue. And the waters receded continually from the earth. Now we skip to when the water's coming away. So that's when it started. Now is when it stops, the flood. At the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month and the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. So how many months would that be? From 217 to 517, we have the day of the month as well. So that's exactly five months. Exactly five months. Now, the Bible here shows that that five-month period equaled 150 days. How do I have from 217 to 517 equals 150 days? Well, that would be 30-day months. Months that were exactly 30 days apart would equal 150 days. Five months, therefore, equals 150 days. Well, with that math, 30-day months, you have a 360-day year. That's in Genesis. That's the math of Genesis right there. I think that's really interesting. Am I saying that we're wrong and that the earth really goes around the, you know, the, the sun in 360 days? No, this isn't about that, actually. It's just about how they're counted their calendar. I think it's very interesting. Revelation also supports this. The book of Revelation, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 11, it says, But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for how long? 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Then again, it says, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that she should feed, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So the specific amount, 1,260 days, as you read the passage in context, it seems to be that the 42 months and the 1,260 days are, are parallels of each other. They're connected. So 42 months equaling 1,260 days means a year of, can you guess? 360 days. If You're welcome to do the math, but that's, that's what it comes out to. I mean, 42 months would be three and a half years. So if you take 360 times three and a half, you get, you get this amount, 1260. So here's what's more interesting to me even than that. This three and a half year period Revelation is obsessing over and giving us even the day of is an overlap of Daniel's 70th week. 
So this three and a half year period that of 360 day days a year corresponds to the last half, the three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. You're welcome to do the research on your own, read those passages in context and see them. You can't deny there's there's these constant like overlapping themes, the abomination of desolation, the sacrifice being stopped, covenant for a week, da 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 da, midst of the week, and then he starts persecuting the Jews, the temple's destroyed, Israel's attacked again. All the, the same themes are happening over and over. Now you might say, well, Mike, maybe 42 months is just being rounded to 1260 days, but that's that's not right because 42 months is closer in, in our time, right? The way we do it to 1280 days. If you were going to round it, you'd round it from about 1277 up to 1280. You wouldn't, you wouldn't go from 1277 and round it down to 1260. So that doesn't make sense. Or you just round it up to 1300. If you wanted to be more generic, you get a nice round number, you'd round it up to 1300. But instead we have 1260 for 42 days, 42 months. I, I think that's really interesting. So how long is a year? Well, did you know that even Jesus he saw this. He saw this as future. Let me uh, quote Jesus to you, talking about what we read about in verse twenty-seven. This abomination of desolation that would happen. Let's read about it here. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, because there will be a great persecution of the Jews during that time. For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. So speaking of this great tribulation that we often talk about. So I think it's also interesting to note that Jesus, in his time, in fulfillment of the first 69 weeks, is standing there in fulfillment of the first 69 weeks, looking at the 70th week and calling it a future event. That's very significant to me. Very interesting. Then Revelation also talks about this, and it all comes together as, well, are these 360 days? I mean, you could legitimately take it either way. And that's the point. It's legitimate. It makes sense. It's not just fabricated. So each year can, I think, reasonably be counted as a 360-day year. Now let's do that math, okay? Are you ready? 483 years that each equal 360 days brings us to 173,880 days. That's a lot of days. So I'm going to lay, for, lay out for you now. This is the new timeline in all its gritty detail. <laughs> Based on Artaxerxes' 20th year, and it would, it would be on March 5th, 444 BC. That's when the command goes out. 173,880 days takes us to March 30th, 33 AD, when Messiah the king is supposed to show up. Messiah, the prince, the king, he's supposed to show up. Now, you, you might ask, Mike, why are you telling me you have the date on this one? You, you only had a, a year, maybe within between two years, for Artaxerxes' first year, 457, 456. Why do I have March 5th, 444 BC, for his, uh, for his next decree on his 20th year of his reign? It's because of this. Nehemiah gives us the month of Nisan as being when he goes to the king and gets the, the letters, the decree goes out, the month of Nisan. And about three or four days later, he's in Jerusalem and he tells us the day. It's like Nisan the fourth and now he's in Jerusalem. This pushes us to the very beginning of the month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. So we have within the first few days, probably the first day of Nisan, which ends up being in our calendar, March 5th, 444 BC. So the, the, 
the text gives us clues here and it points us to a specific day. So we can actually count days, not just years from that point. That's really interesting, I think. It's not just convenient, it's just there. You know, it's there. All right, now, if you're not confused yet, it gets a lot easier at this point. <laughs> it gets a lot easier at this point. So, what happened March 30th, 33 AD? What happened on that day? Now, during Jesus' ministry, the people tried to proclaim him as king many, many times. The, they wanted to say he was the Messiah, and he refused it. In fact, he would do miracles, and he would send people away saying, don't tell anyone what I did. And you're like, why, Jesus? Why don't you want them to pub publish what you've done? They would try to set him up as Messiah, and he would just slip out of the crowd and disappear. Read the text. Read the Gospels. It's like that all the way up until the end of his ministry. He simply would not let them, and he had a repeated phrase he would use. Anybody know what it was? He'd tell them, my time has not yet come, or my hour, my time has not yet come. That's what he'd say. He'd say it both ways. And then one day, towards the end of his earthly ministry, he arranged for the thing that he refused to let happen on previous days. This is interesting. It's recorded in all four Gospels. Let's read about it. Luke 19 says, And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, Loose it and bring it here. Then, as we move forward, they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Rejoice, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 118, which is considered to be a messianic psalm. In fact, they're saying Hosanna here, specifically, which is where our church gets its namesake is Hosanna, right? When you're, you're, you're saying Jesus is my king when you say Hosanna. You're my king, Jesus. Hosanna. Come now. Save now. Now, in case you miss the significance of this, the Pharisees show up because they're always there to make sure you don't miss how important something is. <laughs> Because you can tell directly by their anger how significant an event was. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why? What are they doing? They put clothes on the ground, and they got palm branches, and they're like, Oh, blessed is you, comes in the name of the Lord. Well, they realized that Jesus was deliberately fulfilling what was known to be a messianic prophecy. He was claiming messianic title. Zechariah 9.9 talks about it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And they saw the, the reaction. You're the king. It's a messianic psalm about the king. You're, Hosanna in the highest. The king of Israel, who is the Messiah. He is here. He has arrived. This is what they're declaring. But here's Jesus' answer when they say rebuke your disciples. Now, before, he wouldn't let them do it, but today he arranged it. You would say he deliberately fulfilled this prophecy. Absolutely, he did. Absolutely, this was on purpose. And you can't deliberately fulfill all these unless you're God, um, because you can't deliberately fulfill where you're born or when you're born or certain, you know, how people will kill you, you know, things like that. Uh, but he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, if they don't say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord right now, if they don't say this, the stones would immediately cry out. Why? Why is it so important that they get, cry out on this day? 
Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you especially in this day, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Now he chastises the city for not recognizing the time. This is really interesting. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. You were supposed to know this. Someone told you a long time ago. In fact, he here prophesies the destruction of the temple, doesn't he? Which according to Daniel 9, the Messiah would have had to come before the destruction of the temple. And now here he is coming, and what does he then speak of? The destruction of the very temple and the city that Daniel 9 spoke of that would happen after Messiah showed up and was cut off. Then the temple and the city will be destroyed by a future people. Wow. Wow. So the stones would cry out. Jesus cries over the city. He complains that they didn't know the time of their visitation. This marries very well with Daniel 9. Very well, 600 years after it was written. Now, I think this, at least two, uh, by the way, yeah, that's what the date is. That's the March date we're brought to is Jesus' triumphal entry, the week, bef- the week of the Passion, shortly just days before he was crucified and killed. This is the day he's recognized as Messiah by, the, by the, uh, the people in Jerusalem. He rides in on that donkey. They call out Hosanna. The Pharisees flip out. And he says, no, shame on you. You should have known. So there's at least two reasonable interpretations of the timeline here that point toward Christ. This is why messianic expectation was so high in the time of Jesus. They were looking at Daniel. They are going, hey, he's supposed to be coming. So they're looking for the Messiah. They're very eager about the Messiah showing up. Is he here? Is he here? He's supposed to be coming. According to Daniel 9, he also had to come while the temple was still standing. Because after Messiah comes, gets cut off for others, then the temple's destroyed. So he has to come, not just while a temple is standing, while the second temple is standing. The second temple, which was rebuilt in, in, uh, in Ezra, Nehemiah, these guys' time, it was then destroyed in AD 70. So you have it narrowed down already to some time between the building of the temple and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Then these two prophecies, they point to, one of them are these two potential dates, Artaxerxes' time, one the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the other the end of Jesus' ministry. That's just too much. It's just too much to ignore. What did this prophecy ultimately foretell? Let's remind us again. This is recap. The rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, which did happen. The timing of Jesus' coming, Messiah's coming, which seems reasonably, you could say it was fulfilled. The Messiah's sacrificial death, not just death, but death for others, for others. And the destruction of the second temple and the city, which was fulfilled uh, under the general Titus when the Romans came in and destroyed and wrecked Jerusalem until it was, uh, there's still pieces of Jerusalem in rubble from that time. You could actually go to Israel. They left a pile of rubble as a reminder uh, from that time. And then there is some unfulfilled elements of this prophecy, but they're not unfulfilled because they're left off. They're unfulfilled because they're the 70th week, which even Jesus saw as future. Another temple will be rebuilt. Because sacrifice will begin, and then it will eventually be destroyed again, which we read about in the prophecy. Another destruction will happen. This is future. And this is the direction the world's going. The Temple Institute in Jerusalem is trying to build this temple now. They want to build it, but there's a lot of pressure against them. Perhaps Islamic terrorism will, will, will open the door to more sentimentality towards 
Jews, and they'll be able to build this temple. I wouldn't call this a, a divinely wonderful temple uh, where good things will happen because it's done in ignorance of Christ and not because of him. But we do see it as fulfillment of prophecy, don't we? There will be another temple. How could the Jews miss this? This is, this is kind of the next thing I ask. Okay, Mike, if you're right, and these prophecies clearly point to Jesus, why aren't all the Jews Christians? Why don't they come to Christ in mass? Well, some of them do, by the way. There's thousands upon thousands of Jews who have come to Christ. They're not all unbelievers. But rabbis after the time of Christ, important rabbis, Jewish rabbis, put, put a curse on anybody who would look at Daniel 9 and even try to figure out the timing of the passage. I'm not making this up. Let me quote it to you in these very important works, Jewish works, standard Jewish religious texts, the Talmud, where it says, blasted be the bones, that's a curse, of those who calculate the end. I mean, when you, the bones have to do with the resurrection. So when I say blasted be your bones, it's like you don't get to partake in the resurrection. If you try to calculate the time of the end, this is a section of the, of the Talmud that's about commentary on Daniel 9. Then it goes on to say this, all the predestined dates for redemption have passed. Now the Talmud was written well after Jesus here. And the matter now depends only on repentance and good deeds. This is what you call rabbinic Judaism. They go, we're no longer here for sacrificial saving. We're now, we're, you know, because they ignore Jesus. Okay, so forget it. It's not going to happen. We just have to be good people. So it becomes a good works-based religion. It's not, even, it's not even biblical Judaism anymore. It's rabbinical Judaism. It's a whole different thing based on what these guys said after the temple was destroyed. And then they look and say, you can't even look at the text to look at the date because all those dates already passed. Yes, they have, but the Messiah did come. And we're praying for our, our, our Jewish friends and family and neighbors that they would come to Christ, the Messiah, and realize he came. He came right when he was supposed to come. And he was rejected, but he fulfilled the prophecies. He fulfilled the prophecies. And so many Jews have come to this realization. And I think that they're great evangelists because they, they're like, look at this, you know, and they see it. And they see it. It's beautiful. But isn't that interesting? It's forbidden for Jews to, to even attempt to do the math we just did today. Here's my last thought. This prophecy of the time of Messiah's suffering gives us a date to the rest of the prophecies of Messiah's sufferings. So 27 to 33, this region of time, which interestingly, you're like, that's a big period of time, Mike, right? That 27 to 33, that's, you see some people, there's only two legitimate uh, times for Christ's crucifixion, AD 30, because Passover was on a Friday, or AD 33. I'm convinced it was 33. I have a whole bunch of reasons I could give you, but it's just way too much to get into tonight. Um, but so you have the bookends, though. Jesus was alive during 27, for sure. Messiah was on earth. And then we have his, uh, his, the, death, the death of Messiah, 33, just a few days after the second potential date. But what this does is this grabs Psalm 22. It grabs Isaiah 53. It grabs all the suffering passages. They shall look on him whom they pierce, you know, and it throws them all down in first century Israel right at the time of Christ because the Bible's a unit. So we've now not just got a date for one prophecy, but we have a date for the others as well. That is impressive. These all come together and more, which we'll get into next time. Uh, next uh, next week we're not meeting because I'll be at camp. Two weeks from now we will be meeting. But what we're going to be doing is, I may have a guest teacher that night, but then we're going to be getting back into part 10 of our Messiah, Messianic prophecy and evidence for the Bible stuff. This will be the last week on a, on a prophecy. I'm going to specifically deal with a flurry of prophecies about Jesus and bring them all together 
we've dealt with whole sections, like three weeks of it or four weeks of it now. And then we're going to be looking at the individual passages all across and Zechariah and Malachi and all these various Isaiah and different sections and bring them together and say, what picture does this draw? Do you see, you know, can you connect the dots, la la la, and see that the Messiah is being spoken of here? So thanks guys for your attention and for your time. I went a little bit over, but I'm sure you didn't notice because it's so invigorating. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have, I mean, reason to believe. And I mean, some of us, we don't, in a sense, need those reasons because we've just seen the work of your spirit in our lives. But it's so exciting to see them and to know that they are there and to be able to share them with others. And we pray for that. We pray for uh, this, uh, this video that we're recording even now, that it would go out and it would get into the, to the hands and the eyes and the ears of those whom you want to reach, that they could see the reasonableness the reasonableness of it, and not try to find tiny little loopholes to squeeze out of, but they would let the evidence reason with them, and that they would then turn their hearts towards Christ, towards our Messiah, who died for us because, God, you so loved the world that you sent your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So we pray for the gospel to go out through even this series, to strengthen believers in their faith and trust in the Holy Bible, to reach out to non-believers and destroy the pretend intellectual reasons for rejecting you and to show them as exposed sinners before a holy, righteous God who will judge unless they come to Christ. And we pray they would, Lord. We pray they would know the grace and love that we've experienced. In Jesus' name, amen.